Hey, Kansas City. Welcome to episode 33 of the Made in Casey podcast. We are now in day 35 of the stay-at-home order. I'm Tyler Enders. I'm Keith Bradley. And I'm Thomas McIntyre. Today, we're going to talk about transitioning into our early re-emergence phase as we begin to spend more time outside our homes. Happy Monday, guys. How was the weekend? Happy Monday. You guys aren't going to believe this, but I kind of missed you guys over the weekend since we didn't <clears throat> podcast like we had for the last couple, couple four weekends. Oh, thanks, Keith. I felt, I felt so out of touch, yeah. I mean, so much so I went over to Tyler's house and he came over to my house briefly. That's <laughs> true. Thanks we still saw each other. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually, as I well, sat back down today, because um, I had a bit of a break this weekend, I had a hard time finding things because I have about 90 tabs open on my computer, but they're organized into different windows. And because I'm doing it every single day, multiple times a day, I just know where everything is. And I had to totally reorient myself after two days, pretty much away from the computer. Yeah, it's uh, a lot. I had to go through, I finally had an item on my list to go through mail today. And as mail has been coming through heavily and I get it in waves, it's, I've been sifting through the highly important and non-important. And I finally had to go through large stacks today, but over over the weekend, we had a bit of a, uh, I guess I'll call it a confession because we've, my family might have broken a couple rules and we we got in trouble for it. So Tucker's been learning to ride his bike pretty well, a little no pedal momentum bike. And Emily's kid, his cousin Sam, has been learning to ride the scooter. So there's a big church up the street from us. So he texted, hey, you want to meet the four of us, you know, Sam or six of us. Kids can ride around. We can distance ourselves and be safe. I made the mistake of letting my family know that we'd be doing it via text, thinking that my mom and dad might want to swing by or something like that. The entire family responded that they wanted to come see us and hang out. And so it ends up now Keith over there stayed home to work on painting his house. So he came out unscathed and I think it was intentional. Let me let me interject there for a second. I did say, yeah, I'm going to sit this one out. Be safe, wear masks and uh, call me when the cops show up is what I said in the family that's text. That's, that's what the text said. And so we show up, it's Tucker and Sam, and then my parents show up, and then the Wallace's show up on their bikes, Kate pulls up in their car, and now all of a sudden we have a group that's definitely bigger than 10. Large parking lot, very well spread out, kids all spread out, no one's really touching, but it was still too big of a group. And we're hanging out, felt a little self-conscious about the entire time, but also didn't feel like we were endangering anybody. And then uh, the mission police roll into the parking lot of the church we're hanging out at, and very, very subtly urge us to stop doing what we're doing. They're super kind, asked how we're doing. The kids knew him as their dare officer at, at their grade school. Whoa. So it was extremely low key, but the message was sent and we uh, we all went home after that. So, <laughs> Well, that's good that they're doing yeah. that. I mean, it's tough in a situation like that because it seems totally fine. But we had been talking about doing a socially distanced happy hour where we met in a parking lot with um, the Made in KC employees, because we had 12, 13 or so on our chat on Friday, and we were talking about how good it would be to actually see people in person. We had been saying, like, maybe we should stay on the Missouri side. But, of course, the, the intent's not to break any rules. So is it over 10 that you can't be together? No. And, you know, I was thinking through that, and it might have easily been someone was in the church and didn't like that we were all loitering in the church parking lot, and they called the cops to say, can we scurry these people off? So I, I don't know. He might have just drove by and wanted to make sure it wasn't a bunch of kids and stuff. So hard to tell. He didn't cite like, hey, you have more than 10 or anything like that. Gotcha. But I think it was probably just in numbers. I, I believe the latest thing was over 10, wasn't it? That you weren't supposed to have people hanging out over 10. So that's the specific rule we were breaking. Hmm. Yeah. 
I think something's definitely in the air. Maybe it was the nice weather this weekend. We had the the urge to go visit some friends. Um, we'd previously just been doing kind of sidewalk visits, talking to people from the sidewalk or there in the lawn or even from cars. But we have some friends close by who were just kind of going through a hard time. And so I texted them and said, hey, can, can my wife and I, can we just come over for a little bit and sit in your backyard and, you know, be distant and stuff like that? And uh, they're like, oh, sure, that'd be so great. And just to kind of normalize some things for them. But I don't know why we didn't do that weeks ago. But this is the first time we actually like sat down with another couple for an extended amount of time. Totally safe in the backyard. My mom was watching our kids while we while we visited with them. And it was just like, what were we, what, what were mm-hmm. we doing all this yeah. time? And it was just very, very nice. I uh, forget how much you miss, miss that. I remember when this first started, there were some things that I was doing that seemed really excessive. Like with my parents, for example, the way that they would set something down, walk away, I would pick it up. And we're totally now like handing things off to each other where two people are touching the same object, but on different sides of it. And like, that's totally, it seems completely reasonable to me. And it's just funny how it took us weeks to get to that point. But now, you know, we're not even discussing it. We are just like physically handing things off. I still, I still really do think that multiplied across the millions of interactions that occurred early on, the fact that X amount of people were being extreme like that, certain amount of cases had to have been prevented and totally agree. so on and so forth. And now that we know more about the duration of time that's passed and someone had a symptoms or didn't have symptoms and we're acting differently accordingly, I think is logical and not irresponsible. And um, I'm glad it was like the hyper fear early on. I wouldn't even think about going to my parents' house, even in the front yard until a few weeks in. So anyway confessed sorry we broke the rules and uh well done mission police well speaking of parents last week we ended talking about just the demographic data and so over the weekend i dug into the cdc reported data and it differs a little bit from the john hopkins data for example but overall there's a really massive data set so there's still lots of really valuable information that can be pulled from it so i pulled all the numbers based upon different age groups of covid-19 deaths and use that kind of as a proxy to get a sense for things, and then compared that to the Bureau of Labor Statistics working groups. We had talked about, okay, how much of the population is really at risk if we get some people back to work? If you have a lot of young people go back to work that live by themselves or that live with other young people, is there a way that we could have a more targeted financial aid approach to the older part of the population or the immunocompromised part of the population, or people who live with um, older people or immunocompromised people. And there's some really interesting data on it. So if you look at the age bracket of 44 years and younger, so everyone between 0 and 44, out of all the COVID-19 deaths that we've experienced in the U.S., under 3% of them are attributed to that age. So out of all the deaths that have occurred in the U.S. that are COVID-related, less than 3% occur with people aged 44 and younger. If you then take the next 10 years age bracket, which goes up to 54, so everyone under age 55, the total cumulative deaths make up only 8.2% of the total deaths. So really, really low. And then, of course, if you look at age 85 and above, 85 and above makes up 30% of all COVID-related deaths. But then if you look at age 75 and up, now we're well at over 50. So well over 50% of the deaths occur with age 75 and up, and then you get 65. Not surprisingly, now we're looking at nearly 80% of all COVID-19 deaths have occurred in people age 65 and up. Then you look at the working population. If you go back to that number where only 8% of deaths occur with people of age 55 or less, that makes up 76% of our workforce. 
So I think there is something to be said there, as we had kind of discussed theoretically about how we target our aid approach instead of helping everyone the same way. Maybe we look at which young people could get back to work first. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for those numbers. I think early on, there was a high level of certainty that it did primarily affect an older population. And then that started to wane a little bit. I feel like that there was more concerns that that was just early data and that we we're going to see that it was really going to be more widespread across age groups. And then to hear those numbers this far in kind of supporting what we thought early on, I think at one point there was like it doesn't affect people, you know, and so obviously that hasn't been the, the, the case, but uh, I'm not going to say it's it's good to hear that those are the numbers, but it's at least helpful to have statistics that show who is high, more highly affected this and who isn't, right? Because then you can make decisions off that data. Yeah. And now that we have pretty good social distancing practices, hopefully a young asymptomatic person isn't a vector for spread. And so if a young asymptomatic person is only staying around young people and is socially distancing as much as possible, then in theory, they're overall risk contribution to the population should be really, really low. And Tyler, what was the number? There was a number so you, you talked about 44 and under being 8.8%, I believe. Or Isn't there a number of under 34 as well? What was that percentage? Yeah. So age 34 and under, that group total makes up 0.9% of total COVID-related deaths. And then just to give one more data point, 44 and under was 2.8%. 54 and under was the 8.2% number. Yeah, and then you factor in other things that as we learn more and more about the virus and, and learn more about the, the individuals that affect you, factor in certain levels of um, comorbidities, other health problems that are accelerating or tied into these deaths as well. And I think it makes uh, a little bit of a stronger case for what you're saying, Tyler, of having people go out and, and um uh, how we assess risk in getting out into the general public. So again, not only are you looking at age, but you're looking at some of these other other health factors that we've known about for a while now, and then making assessments and and calculating risk based on that should give us some more confidence as we as we begin to reopen things. I would imagine. And so that's we had talked about it first in the economic frame of mind of getting people back to work because it's important to have a robust economy so that people can meet their daily necessities. On the flip side, though, again, it allows us to have a more targeted approach to health aid and then also financial aid. And so, Keith, you shared this very um, sad statistic with us this morning that 68% of all Johnson County COVID deaths have come from nursing home residents. And we know that that's a really high-risk population for a number of reasons. And maybe knowing this data allows us to be more targeted with our approach. One thing I do want to point out, though, is that death being the result is a pretty extreme end of, of do you feel like you can go back out in the environment and people don't want to get sick, period, let alone just because of the risk they might die. And so I think there's a way to back off of that a little bit too and be like the extremely low population or look at the numbers of people that had symptoms um, as part of that process too. And the younger you get, I believe those numbers still keep going down. So <clears throat> I don't want us to sound tone deaf to the fact that just the risk of death being the reason that people don't want to go back to work. It's the spread of the sickness itself is something we need to think about too. Absolutely. Uh, this, yeah. The spread and ex experience of the illness. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. As we said at the top, this really is just a proxy for the impact that coronavirus has. And proxy is probably the wrong word. It's really just one part of the impact that coronavirus has on our population. At this point, I think a lot of us know people that have 
coronavirus or have had coronavirus. And yes, it does impact people in very different ways. And for some people, it is a brutal, brutal sickness. Um, and so I have had family and friends who both have recovered and who currently have it. And uh, we also know people who unfortunately have passed from it. And so it does affect people in a multitude of different ways. And it would it would be short-sighted to only look at death as an outcome. On that same note, though, if, if we're talking about personal decision-making, my willingness to risk going back into a workforce or public uh, is very different when we're talking about death or illness. And so if, if, if it's desperate times, I'd be like, okay, I'm, I'm willing to go try something if, if, if I'm going to get sick, even if I know that sickness could be pretty bad. If I know that I'll recover from that, let's go. I, I think it's worth it to try and get things moving again versus rolling the dice on, on a potential death. And so I, I do think it's going to guide behavior very differently, but I also don't want to not give thought to the fact that people don't want to get sick at all. So the reason we started looking at this information is because we wanted to talk about this reemergence phase where we're spending more time outside of our house, which means everything from socializing to going to get carry out food to potentially shopping in a few weeks in stores, in person, and then also getting back to work. And so last week, there were two top trade groups that represent the largest retailers in the U.S., including Walmart, Target, etc., and they put together a six-page memo outlining their three-phased plan. There are tons of different industry groups now that have come out with their different plans. And as we said, there are lots of different cities, there are states, all sorts of different organizations that have published their plans. And it makes me uh, think about all the time that I've spent looking into how we should reopen. And it makes me a little bit frustrated in that I wish we could just look to one really good example of, hey, Everyone trusts this source. This is the way that we should have this multi-phased plan to reopen. Here are the measures that you need to take. Instead, we're spending a lot of our personal time. Our employees are spending a lot of their time trying to figure this out. I think that one argument would be, well, different places across the U.S. should be treated differently. And we have this beautiful system of governance where different states can try different things and we can learn from each other. That said, I feel as though we are at a point now where we could put together a very exhaustive list of all the things that should happen and 80% of America would agree with it. Some of the things that this retail group published, in addition to things like hand washing, face masks, gloves, etc., they issued a new guideline on the number of customers that should be in a space. And their rough rule of thumb is cut your fire code occupancy in half. And that brings it down to about five customers per thousand square feet. So for most of our retail stores, that would mean about five customers at any given time, whether that's a coffee shop or whether that's a shop. To me, that feels like a really safe, reasonable number that we could follow pretty easily. Um, at times, we certainly flux beyond that, but I liked that guidance. Then they also said limiting the number of time that people can spend in a store and then special shopping hours for high-risk individuals. These are some things that were more specific to the retail world that we haven't really seen covered by other organizations that have released guidance. And so it was nice to see this, but then again, frustrating that we can't just look to one source to find all this information, but instead we have to pull from 15 different sources to figure out what makes the most sense for us. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you, that you highlight that. I went to two different stores um, recently back to back. And so one was an auto parts store um, and the other was a grocery store. And I was in light of the conversations we had with uh, ourselves and our team last week, I was looking at what they're doing to, uh, to reduce risk and keep people safe. And they were very different in their approach, you know. And so in one place, they had really tall plexiglass built up. But I still had to, in order to 
get my item to be purchased, I still had to directly hand that or slide it under the plexiglass to the individual. The glass didn't really do anything in terms of that exchange. The other place, uh, they had half the employees were wearing masks, the other half were not. I don't know whose job was what in that environment. And so there was, there was no consistency there, which then just means any sort of protections are more vulnerable when they're inconsistent across the board. That's really interesting. Yeah, as a customer, I would like to be able to know that I'm going to run three errands and that I can expect the same degree of care uh, or the same baseline degree of care at each of the locations that I go to. Yeah, for sure. So my, uh, I'd be curious to know what you guys have been doing, but my strategy has been in the three or four different outings I've had is wear a mask and then I bring my own bottle of uh, hand sanitizer with me. And usually I leave it in the car. And so I'll hand sanitize when I leave the car and the hand sanitizer when I get back in the car. I don't know why. I've probably already washed my hands when I left the house, but I do it anyway in the car. Sometimes I have resorted to actually putting the hand sanitizer in my back pocket and just sanitizing whenever I feel the need to in the store. But that's been my kind of strategy. And then come back in, wash my hands when I get back in the house, all that sort of stuff. But it's just, I feel like that's the best I can do right now when, when going out. Yeah, the car thing's interesting too, because then I touch my keys to start the car and I'm like, well, I just touched something that was touched when I was outside of my car and then I respond to a text before <laughs> I get going. And so it's, it's yeah, it, it's all the best we can do. I'm, I'm concerned. I think the level of uncertainty or the lack of guidance thus far has caused some issues in terms of who's open, who's not open, you know, who's essential, who's not essential. And I, I think it's just going to get worse as we get back open and there's all these different ways businesses are going to go about doing things now that we are open and customers are going to like it, dislike it. If we're only allowing five in our store, because we think it's the right thing to do, but other stores are allowing 10 in, that six person that wants to get into our store might be very upset with us about it. And I think it's going to get really messy. I, I guess I just hope that people understand we're trying to do something for good. And so there's a bit of a pass there, but I think it's going to get pretty messy in terms of us picking out our own processes and having people abide by them and not question them. I think about how many people in the world are thinking about these same things at the same time and how frustrating it is that they could be focused on doing other things that are beneficial and useful and instead everyone's solving the same problems because it's so disorganized. Um, yeah, so I recently shared with you guys an article as we're learning more about what we want to do to reopen and what we want that to look like. Uh, about what's going on in South Korea and in South Korea, which is by all accounts has done a, a really good job at um, reducing the spread and ill effects of coronavirus, laid out very, very detailed national guidelines for essentially every industry, even just being out in public and what they wanted that to look like. And they are, it's important to remember from what I read, they are guidelines, but um, the majority of the people are following them. So these aren't laws put in, put into place but everyone is on the same page across all industries and across the general public that it's really having a really positive effect to the point where um, they recently had a national election. I believe they're the first country during the coronavirus pandemic to host a national election, and they had the highest voter turnout in decades, irregardless of the current pandemic. So I think seeing that the way the guidelines were disseminated through the public has bolstered their country's confidence and how to go about their business. Yeah, I think that that historic voter turnout is such an indicator that people have a lot of trust in the national response. And I don't feel as though we, we have the same trust in the national response right now. And so hopefully we can kind of get more on the same page. Um, one of the other things that these retail industry groups talked about was the 
state-by-state approach and municipality-by-municipality approach works really well for stores in that if you have lower incidences and based upon culture, it might make more sense for some places to open earlier than others. But on a supply chain level, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And so it's difficult if you have one distribution center that's able to open up in one state, but they can't ship to the location in another state because you're not allowed to be at work yet. That creates some really weird issues that are just going to be very, very inefficient for our rebuilding. And so I would like to see a strategic approach where, okay, on a national level, we need to get on the same page with some of these things. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting in the retail front too, seeing just so we've seen a lot of reliance on governors and mayors in terms of delegation of decision-making. I think all sense of scale is going to be lost for these regional chains or national chains and how to roll out procedures, and how to roll out other things. And there's going to be a lot of reliance on managers in each individual store to handle these things that hasn't been on them before in a sense of complete control of their store. And I think it's going to weed out Hopefully this makes a lot of managers shine, but it might weed out a lot of managers who aren't ready for that situation. So I think it could be a bit of a disaster because you lose that sense of scale. You don't have enough personnel to, to do what needs to be done. And so if people get new job titles, it'll be, yeah, I think it'll be a defining moment for a lot of different personnel. I think in South Korea, actually, they have a recommendation that each store assign someone who's the quarantine manager and they are the point person for all of these things. Again, a recommendation, not a requirement. Well, shifting gears a little bit, we teased a little bit about how we wanted to discuss on a personal level, both for Made in KC personally, but then our personal lives, what we think makes the most sense as people begin to think about returning to work. So we have had a regular schedule to a degree and that we've been podcasting regularly. We still have Zoom meetings on a regular basis. But as we re-engage our employees, we know that a lot of our employees have not been living on as regular a schedule. And so as we hire people back or bring people back into the normal uh, workforce, we've been trying to figure out the right ramp up because we want to help encourage people along so that way it's a smooth transition. So for the sake of example, one of the small things that we're doing is we're starting out with two weeks where everyone's working 75% of what they typically used to work in terms of just time and energy going towards work. But let's talk a little bit about some of the other personal things that we think are appropriate strategies as people try to go from maybe a life of relaxation or lack of structure into one where they're going to be thrown into a much more rigid schedule again that's going to have more requirements than ever before about making sure you wash your hands, making sure you put on your mask, making sure that you follow all these new procedures. And so we're going to go from kind of a lack of rigidity to a ton of rigidity for a lot of people in the next couple of weeks. So I personally think I think it's going to do a lot of good for a lot of people. We've talked a lot about this break and how it's done good or done done bad for people mentally or physically. And I think some have harnessed it and done well with it and others are just struggling, but also probably aren't excited about the fact of getting back to things because they're not thinking about it like that. But I think adding some structure to days for a lot of people is going to do do good for them. I spoke earlier on, I'm a big believer in decision friction. I can't think of the exact phrase, but the idea that your day is planned out and your processes are planned out and you have a higher functioning mind as a result because you know what's happening next and you do that thing next without a whole lot of thought process. Right now, we're all at home and we're having to make, even if they're small, unimportant decisions. We're making so many decisions right now throughout the course of our day because we're trying to fill a day with nothing to fill it with and our energies is getting zapped as a result. So there's no recommendation in there besides 
those who are concerned or those who are fearful of it, I'd say to shift your mindset to be excited about it and that there's going to be positives that come from adding some structure to your life. Yeah, to help illustrate the decision friction concept, if it takes you know willpower to make a decision, if you think about only having a certain amount of willpower that diminishes throughout the day, we're using it in all sorts of ways that we've never had to use our willpower like energy. So for example, figuring out what you want to eat for dinner it might be ordinarily something like, oh, let's just order out tonight. But now you have to figure out, okay, well, I'm trying to balance my financial budget. And I'm also trying to figure out what can be ordered out right now. And do we think this place is sanitary? And okay, are they doing normal delivery? And all of a sudden, that, that might not be the best example, but things that used to be an easy decision all of a sudden take a lot more energy than they used to. And so unknowingly, we don't feel like we're making a ton of tough decisions. But at the end of the day, we probably used up a lot more of our willpower than we typically do. I think workouts and gyms is one you usually show up at the gym and you have your machines and you have your things that you do. You get a workout and you go home. And now we're forced to work out at home. And we're like, well, I guess I'll do 20 push-ups. And I'll go out to early work. Uh, and I guess I do. And then this workout becomes this stressful thing versus a stress reliever because you don't know what you should do and you don't know if it's effective. And so, uh, yeah, focus on the positives that are going to come from it is, is the first thing I do. And if you are fearful about being able to get up on time to start setting an alarm clock and start working on waking up on a normal schedule, I'm definitely going to start doing that because I've taken advantage of sleeping in a little bit. I'm going to get back to waking up on a normal time. Have to start laying out your clothes in the morning, getting out of your pajamas and all that good stuff, Thomas. Yeah, exactly. Pick out, <laughs> pick out a t-shirt and shorts. I made a joke to, uh, on one of our team calls a couple weeks ago that I still get dressed as normal as I'm going to work, including putting business cards in my pocket and pens <laughs> as pens as well. So I've kept, I've kept that routine going pretty strong. You're going to be excited. such an intense old man. You're going <laughs> <you're gonna> to be <laughs> so intense. I mean, I go ahead. Uh, thanks. Is that a compliment or I, I don't know where to go with that one? <laughs> the highest of compliments. Um, as we've uh, yeah been, been thinking about this for a while, I think we have kept a pretty good good routine. Um, one of the things that we'll start to do next week is go back in the office a couple days a week, and then the following week go back in more full time, more normal. Partly just to ease out of it for the family. I don't think they'll miss me that much, but um, I like to think that they would. So that'll be a little bit of a change there. But going back to the office, getting the office ready for our employees in a, in a new way will be kind of fun and exciting. That I think we're we're looking forward to. But one of the things that I've kind of, this is a, a weird statement to make, but maybe, well, one of the things actually I'm, I'm sort of nervous about or anxious about is while there has been a pretty good regular work rhythm kind of Monday through Friday, weekends have been more relaxing than they've ever been since shops are closed on the weekends, not getting calls, not getting, uh, not having events, all sort of things like that. So one of the things I'm thinking about going back in is how can there be some sort of balance uh, that exists in my weekends as we re-engage all of our team members and all of our shops going forward. Because that's something I've really, really enjoyed is that the weekends have felt different than they've ever felt in the last several years. The other thought I had about this is the idea that there's going to be this like two week long period of the Sunday scaries of thinking about getting back to something and, and the amount of what we are seeing as a bit of a free time is lost. And the amount of people that made lists of things they want to accomplish during this period of time that's been given to them. And I, I admittedly made that list too. And I've truly done almost none of it. And I was getting a little bit concerned about that. Like, well, I can try and knock it out. And I'm just not going to. I think people should not be concerned if they hadn't accomplished certain to-dos that they had made at the beginning of this stay-at-home period and not try and force it between now and getting back to work and just more focus on getting back to normal and, and enjoying that. 
I completely agree with that, that those lists can create a lot of anxiety, although they were intended to do everything but that. And so sometimes it, it's good to just call list bankruptcy and get rid of the list or save <laughs> it for another time. Uh, as a huge believer in routines, I think it's really interesting to try to look at the triggers for different habits and you look at your different cues and you try to find out like what what can I change? What is in my control that will start these really good feedback loops, positive feedback loops, and then also a domino effect. And so the idea might be that like, okay, all I need to do is just brush my teeth. But then once I've brushed my teeth, I'm awake enough that I put in my contacts, which means that I'm alert enough that then I put on my clothes and all of a sudden you start this um, domino effect of habits and patterns that make getting up easier. What I've found for me, just to kind of illustrate how far you can take this, is that one of the biggest indicators for me of whether I'll have a, an easy time getting up early is how late at night I ate. And so if I make sure that I don't eat past 8 p.m., I have a much easier time getting up. But I found that the extra, like so in the morning for me, I want to try to remove all friction in getting up. And so if it's too cold in the house, I'll be like, oh, I need to stay under the covers because it's warmer or you know, any little thing I can find as an excuse. And when I my stomach feels full and satisfied, it is a lot harder for me to wake up than if I'm kind of excited for breakfast or for coffee or something to get my day going. And so I think that as people start to figure out building regularity back into their daily life, they can find something small that's easier to control. It's really, really hard to say, okay, I'm going to get up every day at 6 a.m. no matter what. But it's a lot easier to say, okay, I'm not going to eat any meal past 8 p.m. at night. And all of a sudden, that's going to help create a nice domino effect of other habits and routines. I just give to my father-in-law the Atomic Habits book because of things like that and the uh, yeah the serious profound effects it's had on me. Yeah, that's for anyone who's looking for a book on habits. That is a fantastic book, Atomic Habits. That's by James Clear. I believe so. Yeah. And then there's also The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, but those are both really really good digestible books on on how to add more routine to your life. Just because the idea that humans for the most part, thrive when they're in routines because you can spend all of your time and energy worried about the actual decisions that you confront and so that you can uh, make those decisions with a clear mind as opposed to being bogged down by thousands of decisions that you inevitably have to make throughout the day. Yeah. Do you think most people will be excited to get back to work or will it be a, a big hurdle for them to overcome? Well, I've had the extremely fortunate privilege of being able to call a lot of our employees. And so thank you guys for letting me do that and say, hey, are you still interested in working with us? How soon could you come back? We're ready to bring you back starting on this date. It's been really, really fun to make those phone calls. On the flip side, I also got to make all those phone calls where we said, I'm really, really sorry. We have to furlough you right now. And so getting to do this side of it, I've gotten such positive responses from people being really excited to come back and who are eager to work on the projects that we left off on and who people who really believe in what we're doing. And I think it's a combination of them really enjoying the work that we do and having seen the work that we've been doing in the interim time, but then also getting to add that purpose back to their life that adds some routine because I've found that sometimes I'm more productive with my free time if I am productive at work. Whereas if I were given an entire week off, I might actually accomplish less on my to-do list than if I have to balance my at-home to-do list with my at-work to-do list. And so for me, productivity breeds more productivity. So I'm hoping that people will be excited across the board, but I think we know that that's not necessarily going to be the case. 
Yeah, I also think, sadly, that I don't think that many people like their jobs and not many people like what they do. I think we, we have something that we're passionate about. We work on it. And so, um, but I've had jobs in the past that I was not passionate about. And if I were in a position, which some people are fortunate to be in that they still have a job and they're getting paid, but their routine is way different and it's way more flexible and they're not doing the things they used to do or not having to see the people they didn't want to see that those, that population in particular, the ones that are getting paid, but don't have to go to their job and they don't like it are, are very much not excited about this. I think people that are excited about getting to work, even though they don't like their jobs is the population that truly needs the paycheck and isn't getting it right now. But you add in, and this could be the, the last thing we talk about or, or save it for another episode, but you add in all the articles you're seeing about bosses getting their PPP loans and hiring people back and people getting upset about it. That adds right into this in terms of people that are like, no, I don't want to come back to work because A, I want to make less money. B, I don't like what I do. And and so now I'm kind of find myself in a new routine. And I don't want to change it back. Uh, I think there's probably more people than out there than I'd like that are kind of having that emotion. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if that's a combination of a couple of things. Like, yeah, if you are, if you have been asked to come back to work, but it is, it is for less money than you were making on unemployment while not working, right? You're upset about that. But the other side of that to me is, you know, work is so much more than the paycheck and so much more than money. So it's all these other things we were talking about. It's routine. It's, it's a, a social circle for you. It is a fulfillment. It is uh, all these other things, you know, that are positive about work beyond the paycheck. But if you're in that boat, like you mentioned, Thomas, where you'd be coming back for less money and you weren't getting those things from your work anyway, then that's a really, a really tough situation to, to kind of awaken to out of, out of this month long reprieve from all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I think separating everything, getting back to normal and that including work and that without work going back to normal, all this other stuff like bars and restaurants and going out getting normal. I don't know how many people are going to be separating those two things. Like, well, Going back to work means this is over and the rest of my life is going to get better because of that versus just the fact that I have to go back to work. There's a separation there. I don't know. I think your happiness is going to be tied to all of it, not just the one piece. Well, we've talked about these, you know, when we talked about a couple Earth Day episodes and these using this opportunity to make some more strides or shift towards how we protect the environment. It's making me think there's this other relation with work that we need to rethink as well. Not necessarily we made in KC, but maybe about yeah how how can we how can we make and it goes beyond work life balance for me but how can we make all work more fulfilling so where it is like this you got this break it was good it was weird it was whatever but i'm really excited to get back to work because this is what i was you know meant to do not to be too dramatic about it but yeah, yeah. well while not all companies can change the purpose of their work or the intention of their work i think all employees can't consider how can we make work more enjoyable and palatable for people. So I do think that those workplaces that embrace more flexibility with their schedules will see more success in integrating employees back into the workforce and back into the work environment. It's a good time for a plug for a really cheesy book called, I think, Three Signs of a Miserable Job or Ten Signs of a Miserable Job. You should look at the title. It's like a fictional story of a restaurant and how this manager comes in and adds quantifying things to their job to make it more enjoyable to note progress. And uh, Jess, my wife, was actually required to read it as a nurse. And then she heard me reading it as like a business self-help book. And she's like, why on earth are you reading this by choice? We were forced to read this for uh, St. Luke's. But it kind of shows how it goes across industries. It's 
this really short, weird little fable about enjoying your work and finding ways to do it, even if you don't own your business. Well, those are definitely topics we should talk about again in the next few days. And as you mentioned, Thomas, we should absolutely talk about the struggle, which we kind of forecasted weeks ago about businesses having to spend their PPP money on payroll, but employees in some instances making $60,000, $70,000 a year on unemployment. So thank you guys both. For anyone listening, if you have any thoughts or comments for us, please email them to us at hello at madeinkc.co. And you can find us on Twitter at madeinkc underscore. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks.